Hey, Jenny, you know in ancient Rome, the Julian Claudian family, the one the Caesars are from, they were like really huge on signs and importance and seeing the future. Oh yeah? Tell me more. So the emperor Tiberius was looking to hire a new astrologer and he brought in this new guy named Thersilis. And he said to Thersilis, hey, I want you to cast your own astrological chart and uh, tell me what the future holds for you. What his chart said was that Tiberius was planning to throw him off a cliff. I feel like that's a sign to not take that job. So was he actually planning to throw Thrasyllus off a cliff? He was, but Tiberius changed his mind and they started a beautiful partnership of future predicting. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McManamy. We have a podcast called Ancient History Fangirl. It's true stories and tall tales from the ancient world where we teach you how to survive an ancient siege, chart the rise and fall of Rome's Praetorian Guard, and follow in the trail of the mighty elephant of war. And we also have an epic arc coming up on the Julian Claudians, the ancient world world's real-life Stark family. So check out ancienthistoryfangirl.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. After you listen to the History of Ancient Greece podcast, of course, because it is also phenomenally awesome. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 80, Hecate and Magic. Today's episode is brought to you by our new August Patreon supporters, Matt Warren and Daniel Urquhart, as well as PayPal donor Hans Anderson. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you too can become a monthly Patreon supporter or one-time donor at PayPal. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Hecate was the goddess associated with magic, sorcery, witchcraft, knowledge of herbs and poisonous plants, crossroads, entranceways, ghosts, and necromancy in ancient Greek religion and myth. The etymology of her name is not known, although some have suggested that it derives from hekon, meaning willing, and thus Hecate is the one who works her will. Others have suggested a pre-Greek or foreign origin for her name. Her place of origin is also uncertain, but according to the current scholarly consensus, Hecate originated as a goddess in the pantheon of Caria on the western coast of Asia Minor. At Lagina, which is situated near Caria and was the home of her largest known sanctuary, she was the preeminent deity, ensuring the security and prosperity of its inhabitants, and maintaining close relations with the Carian equivalent of Zeus. Although none of the existing archaeological evidence of her cult at Lagina predates the Hellenistic period, as the site was built up extensively under the Seleucid Empire, a number of Carian personal names are theophoric, as they contain the Hecate root suggesting that her name is not Greek in origin and that her worship was native to this area. 
In the Archaic period, her cult was apparently adopted by the Carrion's Greek neighbors, and was particularly prominent at Miletus, where she had an altar before the Pretanion, as early as the 6th century BC, and a shrine at the city gates by the 5th century BC. Furthermore, her absence from Homer and the paucity of myths about her suggest a relatively late entry into the Panhellenic pantheon, and although Hesiod and his Theogony holds her in high regard and her role is shown to be substantial, the testimony of other writers, as well as surviving archaeological evidence, suggests that this may have been an exception, not the rule. For Hesiod, Hecate is a mighty goddess who has been given a surprisingly wide range of special prerogatives from Zeus. She assists kings and speakers in the assembly, gives victory in battles and athletics, helps mariners, fishermen, and herdsmen, and acts as a korotrophos, or a protector of children. One theory is that Hesiod's original village had substantial Hecate following, and that his inclusion and praise of her was a way of adding to her prestige by spreading word of her amongst his readers. Also, Hecate was mainly a privately worshipped household god, and so another theory is that this more personal type of household worship could have been more pervasive than her public temple worship, and so it would not have been mentioned as much. However, it is clear that the special position given to Hecate by Zeus in Hesiod is upheld by depictions found on coins depicting her on the hand of Zeus. And so while this portrait of the goddess conflicts with most of what we know about her classical Greek cults, it closely resembles the Carian conception of her, right down to her special relationship with Zeus. So it seems then that Hecate was a latecomer to the Pantheon, spreading to mainland Greece from Anatolia, and so was not as well known early on though she was certainly known by Hesiod. But by the classical period, she would become more familiar. For example, variations and in interpretations of Hecate's cultic roles can be traced in Athens. In Aeschylus, she appears as a great goddess who oversaw many aspects of the household, both good and bad. And in Sophocles and Euripides, she is characterized as the mistress of witchcraft and dark spirits. Her Roman association is sometimes identified as trivia, though the two weren't exactly equivalent. If Hecate's cult did, in fact, spread later from Anatolia into Greece, it is possible that it presented a conflict, as her roles in the Carian pantheon were already filled by other more prominent deities in the Greek pantheon, above all by Artemis, and to some extent by Selene. And so, just as Sibylle was assimilated to Rhea when she came westwards, Hecate seems to have sometimes been accommodated in the Greek pantheon as an aspect of Artemis as both were thought to have an interest in weddings, childbirth, and the care of the young. Aeschylus in his suppliants, for example, describes Artemis Hecate as a guardian of women in labor. We discussed the myth of Iphigenia and how it related to the cultic worship of Artemis in episode 76. Well, an important archaic version of Iphigenia's myth, recounted by Stesichorus as well as others, suggests how Hecate might have come to be incorporated into the Greek pantheon without affecting the privileged position of Artemis. Here, Hecate is a mortal priestess, often associated with Iphigenia. She scorns and insults Artemis, and so when Artemis demanded her sacrifice, the heroine was transformed into Artemis Hecate. Like Artemis, Hecate was a virgin goddess who remained unmarried and had no regular consort, though some later traditions named her as the mother of the monster Scylla. According to Hesiod, Hecate was the only child of the titans Asteria and Perse. Asteria was a star goddess who was the sister of Leto, the mother of Artemis and Apollo. 
Their mother was Phoebe, a titaness who originally personified the moon. So Artemis and Hecate were cousins, and both were granddaughters of Phoebe. Eventually, the two cousins became associated with Selene, the moon goddess, who was the daughter of the titans Hyperion and Thea, and sister of the sun god Helios and the dawn goddess Eos. Every night at sunset, Selene was said to drive a silver chariot across the heavens, drawn by two snow-white winged horses and with the moon attached. In the classical period, Selene was often identified with Artemis, much like her brother Helios was identified with Apollo, and Hecate was regarded as the dark side of the moon. Although all three, Selene, Hecate, and Artemis, were regarded as lunar goddesses, only Selene was regarded as the personification of the moon itself. Her Roman equivalent is Luna, which is where we get the English word lunar. Like Hecate, very few myths actually involve Selene, but she is perhaps best known for her affair with the beautiful Endemion, a mortal son of Zeus. Since he was a shepherd, he spent a lot of time beneath the moon. In fact, according to tradition, Endemion was the first human to observe the movements of the moon. Eventually, Selene saw him and fell madly in love. So she went to Zeus and asked him to grant eternal youth to the young Endemion so that he would never grow old and leave her. Alternatively, Selene so loved how Endemion looked when he was asleep in the cave on Mount Latmus, which is located near Miletus in Caria, that she implored Zeus that he might remain that way forever. In either case, Zeus granted her wish and put Endemion into an eternal sleep. Some believe that Endemion came to be the personification of sleep, or the sunset, as his name in Greek can be construed from endeuin, which means to dive in. The eternally sleeping Endemion was proverbial, and as such, was a popular subject for Roman sarcophagi. But exactly how this eternal sleep came about, and what role, if any, Selene may have had in it, is unclear, and varied between the sources. Regardless, Selene was said to have visited him where he slept every night. Although no explicit narrative has survived, the myth is offhandedly described in the 3rd century BC Argonautica of Apollonius of Rhodes, when Selene was witness to Medea's fearful nighttime flight to Jason, and she, quote, rejoiced with malicious pleasure as she reflected to herself, I'm not the only one then to skulk off to the Latmian cave, nor is it only I that burn with desire for fair Endemion. But now you, yourself, it would seem, are a victim of a madness like mine, end quote. The myth of Endemion, though, was never easily transferred to the virgin goddess Artemis, the Olympian, who, as we mentioned, became associated with the moon during the classical period. Besides Hesiod, one of the few other archaic sources that mentions Hecate is the Homeric hymn to Demeter, in which Hecate, together with the sun god Helios, witnesses the rape of Persephone. Implicit in these lines is the later concept of Hecate as a moon goddess. Hecate here is called the tender-hearted, a euphemism perhaps intended to emphasize her concern with the disappearance of Persephone, when she assisted Demeter with her search for her daughter, as we discussed in episode 61. At the end of the poem, Hecate becomes the companion of Persephone, who goes before and follows after her, as she makes her seasonal travels between the upper and lower worlds. Because of this association, Hecate was one of the chief goddesses of the Eleusinian Mysteries, alongside Demeter and Persephone. Serving as a psychopomp, or a guide of souls, Hecate would not only mediate it between regimes, both Titan and Olympian, but also between mortal and divine spheres. 
This is our earliest literary evidence of what was to become her most important role as a deity who provided protection during transitions of all kinds, which were by nature perilous. Hecate thus was associated with borders, city walls, doorways, crossroads, and with realms outside or beyond the world of the living. She appears to have been particularly associated with going between, and thus she is frequently characterized as a liminal or threshold goddess. This liminal role thus is reflected in a number of her cultic titles, such as Apotropeo, or the one who turns away or protects, Enodia, the one who is on the road, Probalea, the one who is before the gate, Triodia, the one who frequents crossroads, Clyducos, the one holding the keys, and Phosphoros, literally the one who brings the light, but meant as a torchbearer here. It was in the intervening spaces between safely defined territories, meaning homes, sanctuaries, cities, and so forth, and times, such as between months, that dangerous spirits were emboldened to attack the unsuspecting. Her very power to protect, of course, derived from her intimacy with and control over these spirits, the untimely and restless dead and other evils. As a goddess expected to avert harmful or destructive spirits from the house or city over which she stood guard, and to protect the individual as he or she passed through dangerous liminal places, Hecate would naturally become known as a goddess who could also refuse to avert the demons, or even drive them against unfortunate individuals. It was probably Hecate's role as guardian of entrances that led to her identification and syncretization with the Thessalian goddess Enodia by the 5th century BC and Hecate even began to use her name as an epithet. Enodia's very name, which means she in the road, suggests that she watched over entrances, as it expresses both the possibility that she stood on the main road into a city, keeping an eye on all who entered, and on the road in front of private houses, protecting its inhabitants. Lacking evidence for the early nature of Enodia, we cannot say which of the two goddesses contributed to the many characteristics that they share. But given the long-standing association of Thessaly with witchcraft, it is logical to assume that Hecate's role as a patron of magical practitioners originated here. Hecate's interest in sorcery is attested first in fragments of Sophocles' Rizotomoi, where she's invoked by Thessalian women as they gather powerful herbs. And Odea also functioned, like Hecate, as a guardian of private houses and a protector of children. 5th century BC Thessalians set up small statues of the goddess in front of or inside houses, asking her aid for a child's sake. As we alluded to, Hecate was closely associated with herbs and the concoction of medicines and poisons. In particular, she was thought to give instruction in these closely related arts. For example, Apollonius of Rhodes in the Argonautica mentions that Medea learned her craft from Hecate and was one of her priestesses. Furthermore, when Jason needed to placate Hecate, it was Medea who told him the rituals that he needed to perform. After bathing at midnight in a stream of flowing water and then dressing in dark robes, Jason dug a round pit, and over it he cut the throat of a female sheep, sacrificing it and then burning it whole on a pyre next to the pit. He is then told to sweeten the offering with a libation of honey, and then to retreat from the site without looking back, even if he hears the sound of footsteps or barking dogs. All of these elements are indicative of the rites owed to a Chthonic deity. Hecate was also said to favor offerings of garlic, which was closely associated with her cult. And she is also sometimes associated with Cyprus, 
a tree symbolic of death and the underworld, and hence sacred to a number of Chthonic deities. The yew, in particular, was sacred to Hecate, as her attendants often draped wreaths made from the yew around the necks of black bulls, which they slaughtered in her honor, and yew branches were burned on funeral pyres. The yew is a tree that has red berry-like fruits, most parts of which are highly poisonous, and its timber was often used to make bows. In fact, the Greek word for yew, or toxos, is hauntingly similar to toxon, their word for bow, and toxicon, their word for poison, from where we get toxicology. It is presumed, then, that the latter were named after the tree because of its superiority for both bows and poison. A number of other plants, often poisonous, medicinal, and or psychoactive, are associated with Hecate, including aconite, belladonna, dittany, and mandrake. Another relatively early center of Hecate's Greek cult was Aegina, where a wooden statue designed by Myron stood in the goddess's sanctuary. We do not know whether the mysteries of Hecate mentioned by Pausanias were already celebrated in the classical period, but the Aeginetan cult is unusual in any case because the goddess rarely achieved such full integration into any civic pantheon. Sanctuaries devoted primarily to Hecate were unusual, and the development of her civic cult elsewhere was probably hampered by the continuing growth of the goddess's reputation as a deity invoked for private and nefarious purposes. As early as the mid-4th century BC, Hecate Chthonia, or of the underworld, and Chthonic Hermes are the deities named in an Attic curse tablet in size on lead, which was intended to bind and neutralize the author's opponent in a lawsuit. We will discuss curse tablets in more detail later in the episode. Although she wasn't worshipped as a civic deity, by the classical period though, along with Zeus, Hestia, Apollo, and Hermes, Hecate became one of the main deities of Athenian households and daily life. She was a protective goddess who was worshipped privately as the one who bestowed prosperity and daily blessings on the family and the household. In this role, Protective statues of Hecate, called Hecatea, were everywhere in Athens, functioning as a complement to the older Herm statues, and the monthly garlanding of these statues was a sign of conventional piety. The large role that Hecate had in Athenian daily life can most likely be attested by the fact that the earliest known Greek depiction of the goddess is a single terracotta figure inscribed with her name that was found at Athens. She is shown seated on a throne with a garland around her head. She is altogether without attributes and characteristics, and the main historical value of this work is that it reveals her presence in Athens by the late 6th century BC, and that the single-bodied shape was her earlier form. That is because in later periods, she was generally represented as triple-bodied, most often shown holding torches, keys, serpents, or daggers. Pausanias stated that Hecate was first depicted in this way by the sculptor Alcamenes in the late 5th century BC, whose sculpture was placed before the temple of Athena Nike at the entrance to the Athenian Acropolis. Her triple-bodied nature has been speculated by some as being connected with the appearance of the full moon, half-moon, and the new moon. More probable, though, is that a triple-bodied Hecate, who simultaneously faced in different directions, was presumably a more effective guardian, and the triple body form also expresses more visually the goddess's role as mistress of the crossroads and dangerous transitional spots where one was likely to encounter prostitutes, disposed persons, and angry ghosts. 
We have already discussed Aeschylus's portrayal of Hecate as a great goddess, with similar functions to Artemis. Well, in his Eumenides, the chorus of Aranyes, or the Avenging Furies, are the ones who cast a binding spell on Orestes before his trial for murdering his mother. Afterwards, the Aranyes give up their vengeful ways to become the Eumenides, or the Kindly Ones, as we discussed in episode 50. In Sophocles and Euripides, we instead see a characterization of Hecate as the mistress of witchcraft and vengeful dead spirits, seeming to take over the role of the Aranyes. In addition, the Keres, who were small, winged female spirits of death, and the daughters of Nyx and Erebos, were said to fall under Hecate's purview. They were dark beings with gnashing teeth and claws and with a thirst for human blood that would hover over the battlefield and search for dying and wounded men. Furthermore, in Sophocles' Rizotomoi, or root cutters, of which only fragments have survived, Hecate dwells at the crossroads and is portrayed as a terrifying figure crowned with oak leaves. And an ancient commentary on Apollonius's Argonautica describes her as having a head surrounded by serpents, twining through branches of oak. Hecate herself was sometimes portrayed as being dog-headed, and as we will see, the dog was very sacred to her. Similarly, the Aranyes were described, depending on the author, as having snakes for hair, dog-headed, coal-black bodies, bat's wings, and bloodshot eyes. And so it seems that the Chthonic deities of Hecate, the Keres, and the Aranyes all had similar attributes and roles, and so may have had their aspects shifted or changed as Hecate was integrated more into the private religion of ancient Athens. And private religion, of course, was not standardized, which accounts for variances by the different authors. Aranus is named in offering lists on at least two Linear B tablets from Panassos. We do not know how much, if any, of the Mycenaean goddess's personality may have persisted in the plural Aranyes of later centuries. But an Arcadian verb, Aranuoi, meaning to be angry, seems to be derived from her name. The Aranyes thus are typically translated as the Furies, literally the angry ones. In Homer, the Aranyes inhabit the underworld and are concerned with the punishment of deviant behavior, especially transgressions of familial duty and respect. For example, outraging a parent, committing a murder of a blood relative, or breaking an oath were all actions that aroused the anger and merciless pursuit of the goddesses. Both dead and living relatives, especially mothers, were thought to have the power to awake the Aranyes through curses. Although by their very nature they were hostile to the processes by which the claims of the family and blood ties give way to the demands of larger social groups, the Aranyes were successfully integrated into the religion of the polis. This process is memorialized in Aeschylus's Eumenides, which shows how the goddesses' enduring powers could be harnessed for the benefit of the state through a program of propitiation. And so, in local cultic contests, the Panhellenic name Aranyes was assiduously avoided in favor of euphemistic titles. For example, the Athenians consistently used the name Semnithei, or the revered goddesses, in their principal cult, an ancient observance that was closely related to the Council of the Areopagus. As a relic of Athens' earliest constitution, the Areopagate Council lost most of its political clout by Solon's day but remained highly respected as the court before which homicides were tried. 
The abode of the Semni Fii was a chasm beside the Arius Pagos, or the Hill of Ares, hence the name of the council. It was at this chasm where, according to legend, the goddesses were persuaded to descend after their unsuccessful prosecution of the matricide committed by Orestes. We learn from the Attic orators and their scholiasts that legal proceedings were limited to the last three days of the month, which were sacred to the three Semni Fii. These were also inauspicious days for any other business to be carried out. Each party at the start of a trial took a solemn oath over the cut pieces of a boar, a ram, and a bull, calling down ruin on himself and his descendants if he lied. Every time someone was acquitted of murder, sacrifice to the Semni Thei was required to satisfy their anger. The Athenians also conducted an annual torchlight procession for these goddesses, in which the women of the family of the Hesychidae, or the silent ones, referring to the solemn silence kept during the proceedings, played a leading role by forming a college of priestesses who attended the goddesses. Other citizens, of whom the order of Demosthenes was one, were also selected to serve as hieropoioi, or the doers of sacred things. Wine was excluded from the worship, a feature typical of old Chthonian cults, and offerings instead consisted of cakes and libations of milk or honey. The Grove of the Eumenides and the Athenian deem of Colonus, associated with the hero Oedipus, hosted an independent cult of the goddesses, who were also locally known as Semni Thei, with its own unique rituals. Both sanctuaries were known as places where suppliants could find refuge, just like Oedipus had in Sophocles' famous play, Oedipus at Colonus. Worship of the Eumenides and other similar tripartite goddesses was widespread in the Peloponnese, where it was associated with Orestes, or less often, Oedipus. Near Megalopolis, in Arcadia, was a sanctuary of the Manii, or the Crazed, who had maddened Orestes until he bit off his own finger. The sacrifice of an expendable body part is an extreme form of expiation. The satisfied goddesses, who had previously appeared black, now turned white, and Orestes, recovered from his madness, established the custom of sacrifice to each group, and a gizmos to the black, and Thusia to the white. That the sanctuary was located in a place called Ake, meaning cure, suggests that people sought healing here, perhaps for mental illnesses. Material evidence of an Argive cult exists in the form of several votive reliefs dedicated to the Eumenides. One, inscribed as a thank offering, shows three benevolent-looking goddesses, each holding a flower in the left hand and a snake in the right. They are greeted by a couple approaching from the right side of the relief. These dedications from the 4th century BC illustrate a more personal, family-oriented cultic practice and shows how the actual worship of these goddesses invariably focused not on their dark and threatening aspects, but on the benefits they could provide if properly appeased. The Athenians similarly appeased Hecate during the Dipnon, which was the first day in a three-day household celebration held each lunar month. In Greek, Dipna means the evening meal, and the ritual of the Dipnon is at its most basic sense, a meal served to Hecate and the restless dead on the night of the new moon. The Athenians believed that on this night, Hecate, accompanied by her hounds, led the spirits of the unavenged or wrongfully killed up from the underworld to enact vengeance, and so the main purpose of the Dipnon was to honor Hecate and to placate the souls in her wake who longed for vengeance. A secondary purpose was to purify the household and to atone for the bad deeds that the household members may have committed during the month that might have offended Hecate, causing her to withhold her favor from them. 
This is because Hecate was believed to have power over the heavens, earth, and the sea, and was able to grant prosperity and all the blessings of daily life. The dipnon consisted of three main parts. The meal that was set out at a crossroads, usually in a shrine outside the entryway to the home, an expiation sacrifice, and the purification of the household. The specific foods mentioned most often in the sources are those usually associated with offerings for the dead, such as raw eggs, some type of small cake, garlic, leeks, onions, and fish. After sunset, most families placed the meal on top of or inside the small shrine to Hecate that they had just outside of their door. Along with the street in front of their house and the doorway into the home, this location created a three-way crossroads, a symbol sacred to Hecate. After the meal was set out, the person placing it down did not look back at it as they went back into their home, believing that the restless spirits who dined on it became angry at anyone who looked at them, and those who looked back could be driven insane. Due to the belief that spirits were out roaming about, presumably eating these meals, the Athenians did not leave their homes during the night hours of the Dipnon. There's evidence that those people who lived in extreme poverty may have eaten the meal instead. Aristophanes in his Plutus writes, quote, Ask Hecate whether it is better to be rich or starving. She will tell you that the rich send her a meal every month, the food placed inside her doorfront shrines, and that the poor make it disappear before it is even served. End quote. Although he doesn't state what the consequences of such action was, no doubt it was considered sacrilegious and may have even invited Hecate's wrath. The purification of the household had two parts the fumigation, and the removal of leftovers from offerings and sacrifices. The fumigation was accomplished by the carrying of a baked clay censer of incense throughout the house and property. This clay censer was then deposited at the crossroads or family shrine outside as an offering to Hecate, along with the food, and was never used again. It was considered a leftover from the ritual. Other such leftovers included incense ashes and the ashes from sacrifices that were on the family altar, as well as any blood from the sacrificial victim and any remaining food that had fallen onto the floor. Food that falls to the floor was never to be picked up, as it was considered to have already passed to Hecate, who would redistribute it to her angry and apparently hungry spirits. Pausanias writes, quote, Whatever is thrown or dropped is lost to this world. Whatever is caught is gained. End quote. Although we are unsure, this might suggest how the poor may have been able to eat the meals without incurring Hecate's wrath. If the poor were able to snatch the meal up before it was set down, meaning before it was lost to the spirits and to Hecate, it would be their gain. And so maybe there was something that they had to do in order to gain the food for themselves. Regardless, all of the leftovers were deposited at the shrine or a crossroads, preferably at the same time as the meal, since you were not to look back at it. Then the household shut its doors and retired for the night. As it was considered unlucky to pick up, touch, or step on these offerings, it's not clear how the offerings were disposed of after the dipnon, or if they were left alone indefinitely. If the household felt as if they had become polluted or that Hecate had withdrawn her favor for that month, they then had to atone for their impious acts, some of which they might not even have been aware of, by sacrificing a dog to the goddess as a scapegoat. Prior to the sacrifice taking place, each member of the household touched the dog, transmitting all of their bad deeds onto this most sacred animal of Hecate. 
Once the dog was sacrificed, the headman of the family read the entrails to make sure that the sacrifice was accepted and that any act of offense against Hecate was wiped clean. The remains were then also set out at the crossroads for the goddess. This ritual allowed the family to go forward into the new month free of pollution. Because the Greeks did not normally consume the meat of dogs, these sacrifices were doubly marked as outside the norm. Only extreme poverty or impiety would move someone to eat such food. Pausanias reports that in the Ionian city of Colophon in Asia Minor, a sacrifice of a black female puppy was made to Hecate as the wayside goddess, and Plutarch observes that in Boeotia, dogs were killed in purificatory rites for private houses. In addition, Thrace and Samothrace are attested as sacrificing dogs to Hecate. Dogs, especially puppies, were considered to be the most sacred to the goddess. It has been claimed by some scholars that Hecate's association with dogs is suggestive of her connection with birth, as the dog was also sacred to Eletheia and other birth goddesses. Furthermore, images of her attended by a dog are also found at times when she is shown in her role as a mother goddess with child, and when she is depicted alongside the god Hermes and the goddess Sibylle in reliefs. Although in later times, Hecate's dogs came to be thought of as a manifestation of restless souls, or demons, who accompanied her, its docile appearance and its accompaniment of a Hecate who looks completely friendly in many pieces of artwork suggests that its original signification was positive and thus likelier to have arisen from the dog's connection with birth rather than the dog's underworld associations. Others have theorized that it might be related to her role as a protector, because the howling of a dog not only heralded her approach, but also watchdogs, which were used extensively by the Greeks and Romans, particularly at night, raised in an alarm when intruders approached. Like Hecate, the dog is a creature of the threshold, as the guardian of doors and portals, and so it is appropriately associated with a frontier between life and death, and with demons and ghosts which move across the frontier. The gates of Hades, for example, were guarded by the monstrous three-headed watchdog Cerberus, whose role was to prevent the living from entering the underworld and the dead from leaving it. Although it was not a religious practice, we should note that since the Dipnon took place on the last day of the month in the Athenian calendar, debts and obligations were also due on this day. The Dipnon is followed the next day by the Numenia, the first day of the new lunar month, when the first sliver of moon is visible. The Numenia was considered, in the words of Plutarch, the holiest of days, and no other religious festivals were allowed on this day, nor were any governmental meetings scheduled to take place. The Numenia thus was a day of relaxation and feasting. According to Herodotus, in Sparta, meat, barley, meal, and wine were distributed to the citizens by their two kings. At Athens, women feasted in the home while males did the same with their religious fraternities. Wrestling matches also took place at the palestra. Private offerings of frankincense, flower garlands, wine, and barley cakes were placed on home altars and household shrines to Hecate and Hermes, which had been freshly cleaned the day before as part of the Dipnon. The official state rituals on the Acropolis included small offerings given to the gods and goddesses that were seen as being protectors of Athens, such as Athena Polius and Poseidon. The most important offering on this day, though, was made to the guardian snake of the city, which was believed to be the living spirit of Kecrops, Athens' first king. It was kept at the Erechtheion, a temple housing the cult statue of Athena Polius, the mark of Poseidon's trident, the salt spring, the sacred olive tree that sprouted when Athena struck the rock with her spear, 
and the burial places of Athens' first two kings, Cecrops and Erechtheus. The following day, which was the third day of the celebration and the second day of the lunar month, saw a celebration of Agathos Daemon, or Good Spirit. He was a personal companion spirit who ensured good luck, health, and wisdom, along with his own companion, Tyche Agathe, or Good Fortune. Although he was prominent in Greek folk religion, he is little noted in Greek myth, and Pausanias conjectured that he was merely an epithet of Zeus. As we described in episode 48, it was customary to pour out a few drops of unmixed wine to honor Agathos Daemon at every symposium or formal banquet. In Aristophanes' piece, when one of the characters, personifying war, has trapped Arene, or peace, in a deep pit, Hermes comes to give aid, saying, quote, Now, O Greeks, is the moment when, freed of quarrels and fighting, we should rescue sweet Arene and draw her out of this pit. This is the moment to drain a cup in honor of the Agathos Daemon. His presence could be represented in art as a serpent, or more concretely, as a young man bearing a cornucopia and a bowl in one hand, and a poppy and an ear of grain in the other. The Agatho Daemon was later adapted into a general spirit of fortune, particularly of the continued abundance of a family's good food and drink, and so he became a spirit of the vineyards and grain fields. There are also several other mythological creatures that have magical qualities similar to Hecate. For example, Empusa was a shape-shifting demigoddess in Greek myth. Her precise nature, though, is obscure. She is said to have possessed only a single leg made of copper, and so a popular folk etymology construed her name to mean one-footed, from Greek en, or one, and pous, foot. In Aristophanes' comedic play, The Frogs, an empusa appears before Dionysus and his slave Xanthius on their way to the underworld, although this may be the slave's practical joke to frighten his master. Xanthius sees, or pretends to see, the empusa transform into a bull, a mule, a beautiful woman, and then a dog. The slave also reassures that the bean indeed had one copper leg, and another leg comedically made of cow dung. Impusa was either commanded and sent forth by Hecate, or according to a fragment of Aristophanes' lost play, Tagonistae, or Men of the Frying Pan, she was actually Hecate herself. By the Roman period, they were a category of monstrous beings, designated collectively as empusai, who were said to seduce and feed on young men. According to the 1st century AD, Life of Apollonius of Tyana, an empusa was a demonic phantom, or phasma, who took on the appearance of an attractive woman and seduced one of Apollonius's young philosophy students in order to eventually devour him when he slept. In a different passage of the same work, when Apollonius was traveling from Persia to India, he encountered an empusa. He hurled insults at it and coaxed his fellow travelers to join him, whereby it ran and hid, uttering high-pitched screams. This empusa confessed to them that it was fattening up the student she had targeted in order to feed on him, and that she especially craved young men for the freshness and purity of their blood, prompting an interpretation by later scholars of the empusa as a blood-sucking vampire. Another aspect of her powers is that she is able to create an illusion of an opulent mansion with all of the accoutrements and even servants. But once Apollonius reveals her false identity, the illusion fails her and she vanishes. Likewise, Lamia was a beautiful queen of Libya, who Zeus also fell in love with. 
after Hera learned of yet another one of her husband's infidelities. In vengeance for her consorting with Zeus, Hera turned Lamia into a disfigured monster who then murdered her own children. Or alternatively, Hera killed Lamia's children, and the grief turned her into a monster. Either way, Hera also cursed Lamia with constant grieving and the inability to sleep, as she was unable to close her eyes, so that she would always obsess over the image of her dead children. Zeus, though, took pity on Lamia and gave her the ability to remove her own eyes at will, so that she could get some rest, and then she could put them back in later. He also gave her the ability of shape-shifting. So when she had her eyes in and was constantly grieving, Lamia grew envious of other mothers, and so she would snatch up their children, tear them to pieces, and then eat them. Because of this, according to Diodorus and other sources, the shape-shifting Lamia became used as a sort of boogeyman by mothers or nannies to frighten and discipline children into good behavior. Other bogeys included the Gorgon, the eyeless giant Ephialtes, and Mormo. Diodorus also describes Lamia as not being fully human, but having serpent-like features, and so strong parallels have been made by scholars with Medusa. In addition, the Lamia was said by some sources, such as Stessa Chorus, to have been the mother of Scylla, a creature depicted variously as serpent-bodied. By the 1st century AD, like with Empusa, the conception of the Lamia shifted to that of a sultry seductress who enticed young men and devoured them. In fact, by this point, Empusa and Lamia essentially became interchangeable. In a speech, Apollonius declares that the seductress is, quote, one of the Empusae, which most other people call Lamiae and Mormocleae, end quote. Some commentators have also equated Lamia with Hecate. The basis of this identification is the variant maternities of Scylla, sometimes ascribed to Lamia, as already mentioned, and sometimes to Hecate. The identification has also been built, using transitive logic, since each name is identified with Empusa in different sources. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't just stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash G-R-E-E-C-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. And so now, we are going to talk about the origins and different practices of the dark arts that Hecate was said to have been a goddess over. Magic is a difficult concept to explicitly identify in ancient Greece, because there was no category exactly equivalent to our modern notion of the term. It's likely, though, that the use of what we might broadly describe as magical practices was widespread in all places and at all times. 
the root of the word magic, the Greek word magos, initially referred to a Persian shaman. The word magos was influenced by and eventually displaced the Greek word goes, the older word for a practitioner of magic, sorcerer, or wizard, which included astrology, alchemy, and other forms of esoteric knowledge. Similarly, the Greek word goetia means sorcery or charmer, and its meaning is attested in a scolion, referring to the dactyli, a mythical race, which states that according to Pharisides of Syros and Hellenicus of Lesbos, those to the left are goetes, while those to the right are deliverers from sorcery. The word may ultimately be derived from the verb goea, meaning to groan or to bewail. Derivative terms are goetuma, a charm, and the verb goetuo, meaning to bewitch or to beguile. The association with goes and magos, though, was in turn the product of the Greek fascination for Zoroaster, who spawned the Persian religion of Zoroastrianism that we discussed in episode 33. Zoroaster, or rather what the Greeks perceived him to be, was the founder and figurehead of the magoi, the anglicized magi. And once the word magos had become associated with magic, or Greek magikos, it was but a natural progression that the Greeks' image of Zoroaster would metamorphose into a magician too. In fact, the 1st century AD Roman author, Pliny the Elder, named Zoroaster as the inventor of astronomy and magic in his natural history. But he says that Zoroaster was not the one who introduced the dark arts to the Greek and Roman worlds. That dubious honor went to a magos named Astanes. There is much confusion here, though, because during the Hellenistic period, most of the pseudo-anonymous magical literature was attributed to ancient Persian figures, including Zoroaster, Hystaspes, and Astanes. Unlike Zoroaster and Hystaspes, though, there is no figure of a similar name in the Persian historical tradition. Since the Greeks considered the best wisdom to be exotic wisdom, the origins of the figure of Astanes, or rather, who the Greeks imagined him to be, lies within the framework of this type of alien wisdom that the Greeks, and later the Romans, ascribed to famous foreigners, many of whom were famous to the Greeks even before being co-opted as authors of secret knowledge. The subjects of these texts, the authenticity of which was rarely challenged, ranged from treatises on nature to ones on necromancy. But the bulk of these texts deal with astronomical speculations and magical lore. Pliny goes on to note that Astani's introduction of the quote monstrous craft to the Greeks gave them not only a lust for magic, but a downright madness for it. And so many Greeks, such as the semi-mythical Orpheus, Pythagoras, and Empedocles, supposedly traveled abroad to study it, and then returned to introduce it to their people. Regardless of how it was introduced, the oldest surviving Greek reference to the Magi might be from the late 6th century BC, with a preserved fragment of Heraclitus, who was from Ephesus, a city in Asia Minor which at that point was part of the Persian Empire. Heraclitus here curses the Magi for their impious rites and rituals. A description of the rituals that he refers to has not survived, though, and there is nothing to suggest that he was referring to foreigners. As early as the 5th century BC, the Greek word magos had spawned magia and magike in its lexicon to describe the art and practice of a magos. But almost from the outset, the noun for the action and the noun for the actor parted company. Thereafter, magia was used not for what an actual magi did, but for something related to the word magic in the modern sense, meaning the use of supernatural means to achieve an effect in the natural world or the appearance of achieving these effects through trickery or sleight of hand. 
The early Greek texts typically have a pejorative meaning, which in turn influenced the meaning of magos to denote a conjurer and a charlatan. And already in the 5th century BC, Herodotus identifies the magoi as interpreters of omens and dreams. Although Herodotus, Xenophon, and Plutarch use magos in connection with their descriptions of Zoroastrian religious beliefs or practices, the majority seem to have understood it in a sense of a magician. Accordingly, a number of more skeptical writers, those being the Greek philosophers, such as Plato and Aristotle, as well as members of the medical profession, tended to equate magic with frauds. Although magic was often seen as consisting of practices that range from silly superstition to the wicked and dangerous, it seems to have borrowed from religion, adopting religious ceremonies and divine names, and the two were sometimes difficult to clearly distinguish. And so, although associations with this term were an evolving process in ancient literature, generally speaking, ancient magic reflects aspects of broader religious traditions in the Mediterranean world, that is, a belief in magic reflects a belief in deities, divination, and words of power. However, magic is often differentiated from religion in that it is manipulative rather than supplicatory of the deities. Religious rites, which had the intended purpose of giving a god their just due honor or asking for divine intervention and favor, are more often aimed at lofty goals, such as salvation or rebirth, and are conducted in the open for the benefit of the community or group of followers. Magic, on the other hand, was seen as being practiced by those who seek only power, aimed at selfish or immoral ends, and were conducted in secrecy, often for a paying client. The practice of magic thus includes certain rites that do not play any part in religious worship, and so are ultimately irreligious. From the late 6th century BC onwards, there are scattered references to several famous Greek magoi, including the semi-mythical Orpheus, Pythagoras, and Empedocles. Orphism, which we will discuss next episode, seems to have been central to Pythagoras and Empedocles. Pythagoras, for example, is said to have described Orpheus as being the father of melodious songs, and as we discussed in episode 20, Pythagoras was very interested in the harmony of music. We also discussed some of the magical powers attributed to Pythagoras, and Orpheus is certainly associated with a great many deeds, which are not usually condemned or spoken of negatively. This suggests that some forms of magic were more acceptable than others. In fact, the term that was applied to Orpheus in order to separate him, presumably from magicians of ill repute, is Theos Honor, or Divine Man. Empedocles was also said to have marvelous powers associated with later magicians, such as being able to heal the sick, rejuvenate the old, influence the weather, and summon the dead. He was a combination of poet, magos, teacher, and scientist. We will discuss Empedocles and in particular talk about his scientific achievements in a future episode. Scholars have argued that since much of the acquired knowledge of individuals like Pythagoras or Empedocles was somewhat mysterious even to those with a rudimentary education, it might very well be why they were associated with magic, or at least with the learning of Imagos. In Greek literature, there are numerous examples of magic as a practice aimed at trying to locate and control the secret forces of the world. The earliest is in Book 10 of Homer's Odyssey, where we encounter the witch Circe. She was the daughter of the titan sun god Helios and Perse, an Oceanid nymph, and sister to Aetes, Persis, and Pasiphae. Other accounts make her the daughter of Hecate. Either way, she lived on the solitary island of Aea, 
and later sources claim that she was exiled there by her subjects and her father Helios for killing her husband, the prince of Colchis. Circe was renowned for her vast knowledge of potions and herbs, as well as the use of a magical wand, and she was capable of transforming others into wild beasts. In the Odyssey, Circe is described as living in a mansion that stands in the middle of a clearing in a dense wood. Around the house prowled strangely docile lions and wolves, the drugged victims of her sorcery. They were not dangerous and fond over all newcomers. When Odysseus's crew had stumbled upon her, she invited them in to feast on a pottage of cheese and meal, sweetened with honey and laced with wine, but also laced with one of her magical potions, and they also drank from an enchanted cup. After they gorged themselves on the feast, she turned them all into swine with her magic wand. Only Eurylochus, who suspected treachery from the outset, and so did not enter the mansion of Circe, escaped to warn Odysseus and the others who had stayed behind at the ship. When Odysseus sets out to rescue his men, he was intercepted by the messenger god Hermes, who had been sent to him by Athena. Hermes told Odysseus that he needed to use a magical herb called Molly, as well as its location, in order to defend himself against her sorcery. Hermes also said that once he resisted her, he should draw his sword and act as if he would attack her. From there, Circe would become so turned on by his bravery and skill that she would ask him to bed. But Hermes advised caution, for even there the goddess would be treacherous. She would take his manhood unless he had her swear by the names of the gods that she would not. This story contains three elements that become standard to the definition of magic used in later literature. The use of a mysterious tool endowed with special powers, the wand, the use of a rare magical herb, the molly, and a divine figure that reveals the secret of the magical act, Hermes. Another important definitional element to magic is that Circe is presented as being in the form of a beautiful woman, a temptress, when Odysseus encounters her on the island. This may suggest that magic was associated, by this time, with practices that went against the natural order or against wise and good forces, and Circe is even called a witch by Eurylochus. In this same vein, it is worth noting that Circe, a titaness, is representative of a power that had been conquered by the younger Olympian gods. Anyways, after Odysseus followed Hermes' advice, she freed his men and they were transformed back into humans. But he gave in to her charm and remained on the island for one year, feasting, drinking wine, and bedding her. When Odysseus finally decided that it was time to leave, Circe advised him to go to the underworld and instructed him in the art of summoning up the spirits of the dead, a magical practice known as necromancy, which we discussed in episode 60. It is an inversion of what was performed to the Olympian gods, as the sacrificial victims were black rather than white, and the meat is not consumed but is burned in honor of the Chthonic gods. Similarly, in historical practice, individuals who wish to evoke the dark powers beneath the earth commonly use the dead as their go-betweens. In particular, archaeologists have found roughly 1,600 cursed tablets, mostly written in Greek. Of these, 220 were located in Attica. Many of these tablets were placed in grave sites of those who had died at a very young age or in a violent manner, particularly suicide and murder victims. The tablet was supposed to help lay their souls to rest in spite of their untimely deaths. One popular type of curse tablet involved binding spells, or katadesmoi, which derives from the verb katadine, meaning to tie fast, bind, and immobilize. 
And so the usual objective of ritual binding was to subject another human being to one's will by making the person unable to act according to his or her own wishes. These type of spells were typically inscribed on what is often referred to as curse tablets, which were very thin sheets of lead with the names of the persons to be cursed. In some cases, as many as 15 names are mentioned on a single tablet. Not all tablets included a personal name, though, but it is clear, especially later, that tablets were sometimes prepared in advance, with space left for inserting the names provided by paying customers. Many tablets allude to the parts of a person's body that are to be cursed, such as the tongue, eyes, soul, mind, mouth, arms, legs, and so forth. Lead was used, perhaps because of its color and weight, or it may have been viewed as being particularly appropriate for the underworld. Such objects as these cursed tablets are significant sources of evidence because unlike much of the literary evidence, they reflect the rituals and beliefs of people whose lives would otherwise be unrecorded by history. They also show that all members of society, regardless of economic or social status, engaged in what we would consider magic nowadays. These magical rites were undertaken by an individual on his own behalf, often with the intent to harm and usually with the help of a magos, wizard, witch, or sorceress, acting as a sort of priest, though one lacking the sanction of a community or polis. The tablets were then often rolled or folded, and placed in the grave alongside the gifts that were intended to be used by the deceased in the world to come, as well as in sanctuaries of chthonic deities and underground bodies of water, all in order to make contact with the powers of the dead. Various underworld powers or liminal gods are evoked on the tablets also, including Pluto, Persephone, Hecate, Hermes, and Charon, sometimes via the mediation of a dead person, probably the corpse in whose grave the tablet was deposited. Some texts do not invoke the gods though, but merely list the targets of the curse, the crimes or conditions upon which the curse is valid, and or the intended ill to befall them. Not all of the tablets provide context, but the language used in those that do shows that they were often concerned with justice, either listing the target's crimes in great detail, handing over responsibility for their punishment to the gods, or using indefinite grammar, such as whoever committed this crime, a conditional, like if so-and-so is guilty, or even a future conditional, like if so-and-so ever breaks his word. Some tablets are inscribed with nothing more than the names of the targets, leading to the belief that physical binding gestures and an oral spell may have accompanied the cursing ritual. In addition, in order to reach the other world, the lead tablet had to be cancelled, so to speak, for use by the living. For this reason, tablets are often found with one or more nails driven through them. A variant on this device was a kind of antique voodoo doll, a miniature figurine made of lead that was sometimes transfixed through the breast with a needle. It resembled the target and often had both their feet and arms bound behind its back. It seems that one of the most common reasons for cursing in the highly litigious polis of Athens was regarding a lawsuit, as we can ascertain from the discovery of a large collection of tablets that curse individuals who have allegedly given false testimony or they wish to prevent would-be prosecutors from being able to speak, to make them become dizzy and so forth in order to botch his performance in court. Other tablets found include spells against thieves, business competitors, and athletic rivals, as well as against pimps, bods, and prostitutes. Binding the speech of these unsavory individuals was presumably used by the more self-righteous Greeks who wished to prevent them from soliciting customers. 
Another common curse tablet was for Philtrocotodesmos, or a binding love spell. No doubt used by those with an unhealthy obsession towards a person of romantic interest. When used in this manner, they were placed inside the home of the desired target. Sometimes, they were discovered alongside the aforementioned dolls, intended to attract the love of a woman or a man. Curse tablets also included hair or pieces of clothing. This is especially the case in love spells, which calls for hair from the head of the love target. Some love spells have even been discovered folded around with some hair, probably to bind the spell itself. Scholars have debated the possible motivations for the use of these love spells, including unrequited love, sexual control of the victim, financial gain, and social advancement. The love spells used were similar in design around the Mediterranean world and could be adjusted to different situations, users, and intended victims. Recent scholarship has shown that women used curse tablets for erotic magic much more than originally thought, although they were still in a minority. There is also debate over the type of women that men were trying to attract with these spells. Some scholars subscribe to the idea of men trying to make fair, chaste women become filled with desire for them, while others argue that men were trying to control women whom they thought to be sexually active for their own personal benefit. Some scholars divide these erotic curse tablets into two categories, separation or attraction. With separation tablets, the invoker of the curse hopes to destroy relations between the object of one's affection and their current lover. For example, the invoker of a 4th century BC tablet from Attica hopes to destroy relations between Theodora and her lover, Carius. Quote, I bind Theodora in the presence of the female one at Persephone's side, referring to Hecate, and in the presence of those who are unmarried. I bind Theodora to remain unmarried to Carius, and I bind Carius to forget Theodora and sex with Theodora. End quote. These type of separation tablets weren't just intended for heterosexual relations either. A 4th century BC tablet from Nemea hopes to separate two male lovers. Quote, I turn Eubolus away from Aeneas, from his face, from his eyes, from his mouth, from his breasts, from his soul, from his belly, from his penis, from his anus, from his whole body. End quote. With attraction tablets, a man typically imposes restrictions on a certain woman until she is attracted to him. For example, one late 4th or early 3rd centuries BC tablet from Ancanthus in Macedonia reads, quote, Pausanias binds Syme, daughter of Amphitritus. May no one but Pausanias undo this spell, until she does for Pausanias everything Pausanias wants. May she not be able to get a hold of a sacrificial victim of Athena, nor may Aphrodite look kindly upon her before Syme holds Pausanias tight. End quote. Other scholars consider the spells to fall into two distinct categories those used for inducing passion and those used for encouraging affection. Men, according to these scholars, were the primary users of the passion inducing spells, while women were the main users of the affection spells. By the classical period, Greek myth had developed a negative image of witches. A particularly chilling example is the character of Medea, who in Euripides' play uses her dark, magical skills to fashion a deadly wedding dress for the bride of her ex-lover Jason and also murders her own children, as we discussed in episode 52. And like today, witchcraft in ancient Greece seems to have been associated primarily with women, especially foreigners. Theocritus, who worked in Alexandria in the early 3rd century BC at the court of Ptolemy Philadelphus, wrote an elegant poem entitled Pharmacotria, 
or the sorceress. In one scene, a woman called Samatha enlists the help of her slave girl, Thestalis, as she employs magic to bring back her lover, Delphis. Several magical devices or tools are mentioned, most notably the yonks, a small wheel-like device, usually made of metal and pierced by two holes at the center, through which a looped thread was passed. When spun, it emitted a sound that was both seductive and persuasive, but that also, like so many seductive and persuasive sounds, was possibly deceptive, spelling ruin for its listeners. The name is thought to derive from a wry-neck bird of the same name that can twist its head around without moving the rest of its body. This movement was interpreted as an erotic mating dance. Also, a bronze gong was sounded to protect the magician from the evil powers that he or she has aroused. An earlier reference to the Yonks also occurs in Pindar's fourth Pythian ode, where Jason uses it to cause Medea to fall in love with him in order to help him steal the Golden Fleece. Medea is probably the best-known witch described in the literary sources. She was said to practice witchcraft, the Greek word is pharmasane, both the casting of spells and the use of potions or drugs. In myth, she is the granddaughter of the sun god Helios and the daughter of Aetes, a king of Colchis in the Black Sea area, thus making her the niece of Circe. The 3rd century BC poet Apollonius of Rhodes wrote an epic poem called the Argonautica, in which he describes Jason's quest for the Golden Fleece. During the poem, Medea goes with her attendants to the shrine of Hecate with her box of potions in order to evoke the powers of the underworld for her aid in her task. The poet then described the origin of the pharmacon, or potion, that will make Jason invulnerable. It's from pharmacon that we get the English word pharmacy and its derivatives. Medea, though, doesn't just use potions for her magic. She also spellbounds the monstrous serpent that guards the golden fleece. Another important source of evidence are papyri, generally known as the Greek magical papyri, which date from the 2nd century BC to the 5th century AD. These texts, which were discovered in the sands of Egypt in the early 19th century, are only a small fraction of what once existed, as there were many book burnings later by both pagan and Christian Romans alike. Although many of the papyri are from Greco-Roman Egypt and of a later date than the period being covered now, they nevertheless offer valuable information about practices that had long been prevalent throughout the Greek world. They are also important for the study of ancient religions, because most of the texts combine multiple religions, including Egyptian, Greek, Jewish, Babylonian, and Christian, all of whose influences were engendered by the unique setting of Greco-Roman Egypt. While most of the papyri are in Greek, there are also passages in earlier Egyptian heretic script, as well as Demotic, and some have words glossed into Old Coptic, an Egyptian language written with the Greek alphabet in order to indicate vowels, which Egyptian scripts did not have, and supplement it by extra signs taken from the Demotic for sounds not found in Greek. The oldest of the Greek magical papyri was deposited in the main temple of Osirapis in the Serapium at Memphis in Egypt. It records a prayer for justice by a mother named Artemisia because her daughter has been deprived of full burial rites, allegedly by the girl's father whom she curses. We discussed last episode the importance of burial rites in ancient Greek society. With this older content, the Greek gods are given attributes of their Egyptian counterparts, and Egyptian deities were referred to by Greek names. Still though, within this profusion of cultural influences, classical Greek material can still be seen, and perhaps even aspects of a more accessible folk religion than those preserved in the mainstream literary texts. 
Sometimes, the Greek gods depart from their traditional Olympian natures, familiar to classicists, and seem far more chthonic, demonic, and dangerous. This is partly the influence of Egyptian religion, in which animal deities and the terror of the divine were familiar elements. And so equally, the context of magical texts makes such sinister deities appropriate. We will discuss how the Greek pantheon is syncretized and the Egyptian religion is Hellenized in Hellenistic Egypt much later down the road. Many of these pieces of papyrus are pages or fragmentary extracts from books that originally contained magical spells, formulae, chants, and rituals, as repositories of arcane knowledge and mystical secrets. What we have, as far as the books have been reconstructed, appear to fall into two broad categories. Some are compilations of spells and magical writings, gathered by scholarly collectors, either out of academic interest or for some kind of study of magic, and others may have been the working manuals of traveling magicians, containing their repertoire of spells and formulae for all occasions. These often poorly educated magic users were more like showmen than the traditional Egyptian wizards, who were a highly educated and respected priestly elite. The pages are interspersed with magic words and often in shorthand, with abbreviations for the more common formulae. These spells range from impressive and mystic summonings of dark gods and demons, to folk remedies and even parlor tricks, and from portentous fatal curses, to love charms and cures for impotence and minor medical maladies. In many cases, the formulaic words and phrases are strikingly similar to those found in the Greek curse tablets. Since some of these tablets date from as early as the 5th century BC and have been found as far afield as Athens, Asia Minor, Rome, and Sicily, as well as Egypt, this provides a degree of continuity and suggests that some observations based in the Greek magical papyri will not be altogether inapplicable to the study of the wider Greco-Roman world. As a protection against curses, bad luck, and the evil eye, amulets were often worn around the body, particularly by young children. Many were made of cheap materials, though precious stones were believed to have special efficacy. Because they were believed to ward off evil or other undesirable happenings, they were applied to the skin as protection against infection or disease. It was even believed by some that amulets, when worn during intercourse, could act as a kind of contraceptive. For example, one recommendation for a contraceptive in the Greek magical papyri says, quote, A contraceptive. Take a bean that has been pierced, tie it up in a piece of mule skin, because mules are sterile, and wear it as an amulet, end quote. A reference in Plato's Carmides mentions the use of a leaf as an amulet that only worked as a cure for a headache if an incantation was also performed. Plutarch, in his Life of Pericles, tells us that even Pericles, a confirmed rationalist, tied an amulet around his neck when he contracted the plague. It was taken as proof that the statesman really must be in a bad way if he was prepared to put up with such nonsense, as Plutarch says. In addition, foreign and nonsensical words were credited with magical powers. Given alongside these spells, called epoidae, herbs and plants made into potions were believed to possess magical healing properties. Magic also played an important part in religious rituals, notably in regard to birth. Midwives, who in the absence of male physicians, presided unaided in the birthing room, also possessed a variety of skills of magical, religious, and quasi-medical nature. In describing the healing skills of Asclepius, Pindar in his third Pythian ode mentions the use of pharmaca, the application of external remedies, possibly amulets, and surgery. 
According to Plato in his Republic, all of these efforts are futile, though, if one indulges in an excessive lifestyle. Quote, Until people give up eating and drinking too much, and idleness, and debauchery, no medicines, pharmaca, or surgery, no spells, epoidae, or amulets, periapta, will do them any good. In his laws, Plato lists the various magical practices that were being sold by corrupt individuals who rejected traditional religion and declares that such individuals should be punished. He also addresses the problem of willful and deliberate poisoning caused by potions, food and ointments prepared by sorcerers or witches, and binding spells that cause physical injury. According to Plato, those convicted of such practices should be executed. Evidence for actual legislation against harmful magic and its repression is scanty, though. But there is evidence for curses being brought down on offenders and their families for anyone who threatens the welfare of the state. For example, a 5th century BC inscription from Tios, a city on the coast of Asia Minor near Ephesus, records a series of measures to protect the welfare of the state against anyone making harmful spells or poisons, prescribing either the death penalty or a curse on the offender and his family. Another inscription from the 4th century BC recreates the oath that the Spartan settlers on Thera had to undertake upon arriving on the island two centuries earlier, which was accompanied by the ritual burning of wax dolls, with the prayer that those who broke the oath would experience the same fate as the dolls. In addition, the second column of a sacred law, dating to the mid-5th century BC, discovered near Selenus in Sicily, gives directions for dealing with an elasteros which can be translated as an attacking ghost or an avenging spirit that haunts the killer on behalf of the victim. The ancient Greeks also dealt with the supernatural world through the mediation of itinerant seers. These were wise men, attached to no temple or sanctuary, who traveled about and made their livelihood by prophesizing, purifying, and healing. They practiced these three arts through their intimacy with the indivisible world of spirits, to which the causes of disease and uncleanliness were ascribed, as we discussed in episode 78. Epimenides was one of the most famous and powerful of these wizards, and as we discussed in episode 24, Plutarch writes that Epimenides was called upon to purify Athens after the pollution brought on by the curse of the Alcmeonidae. Plato in his Republic comments on the prevalence of itinerant beggar priests and seers who, quote, come to the doors of the wealthy and persuade them that they have the God-given powers to cure by means of sacrifices and incantations that are accompanied by pleasurable feasts, whatever misdeeds they or their ancestors have committed. If someone wants to injure an enemy, for a small fee, he can harm a just or unjust person alike, since they persuade the gods to do their bidding, so they say, by charms and binding spells. End quote. The distinction between such charlatans or quacks and the true seer or diviner who has official status within a state is implicit in an excerpt from Tiresias in Sophocles' play Oedipus the King. Quote, the trusty Creon, he who always was my friend, has crept against me secretly, desiring to dispose me, sneaking in this conjurer, Magos, this scheme-weaving deceptive beggar-priest with eyes only for profit, blind and using his prophetic skill, end quote. On the next episode, we will elaborate more on these itinerant seers, as well as the more traditional roles of omens and oracles, which we have mentioned somewhat every now and then. In addition, we will look at one of the last major mystery religions not yet talked about that was very popular in the classical period. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 81, Orphism, Omens and Oracles. Thank you.